0: There's a, <clears throat> there's a downside to doing this. Yeah. Yeah, the downside is um, <clears throat> all the notes that I had written on my copy of the slides are now invisible. So we'll, um, that's all right. We'll do this from memory and see how it goes. Whoa. Ah, Vincent, my brother. You're good. I was going to ask everybody to get out their cigarette lighter and, you know. (laughs) This is perfect. This will work just fine. Well, we have a full house, which tells me that if we want to get everybody out for a Sunday evening service, we need to do movie reviews. So uh, next week we'll do MI3 and we uh, <laughs> see what we get out of that, huh? No. Well, the the Da Vinci Code is a is a big cultural phenomenon. There's no question about it. It um as I've said several times including this morning, um over 40 million copies of the book sold worldwide. It was uh at or near the top of the New York Times bestseller list since 2003. So it's been, uh, <clears throat> been around for quite a while. And a major motion picture is scheduled for release this week, the 19th of May. And that is why someone asked me, why did you decide to do this on Mother's Day? Well, I wanted to do this uh, in a time that would coincide with the release of that film because I do believe that those whom you work with, your family members perhaps, Friends, neighbors, uh, perhaps even people here uh, that you would meet at Foothill are going to be talking about this particular phenomena, this Da Vinci Code. The, uh, I have read the book, and actually, this uh, past week and a half, I've read five books, well, including that, so four others. And I've read, I'm up to my ears in the Da Vinci Code. I don't want to read about it anymore. But uh, <clears throat> it is a very well written uh, novel, And there's no question about that. It wouldn't sell 40 million copies if it wasn't well-written. It is a murder mystery, and those of you who like murder mysteries, it is, a, it is a good one. It follows the standard formula, but it is still well put together. It's a page-turner. It propels you forward from the opening scenes of the book, and I assume the movie as well, when there is a murder inside the Louvre, the, uh, the world-famous uh, art museum in Paris. And from there, the plot just begins to... Uh, to race towards its conclusion. The, uh, the author, and we'll talk more about this, the author uh, uh, has put together a very uh, compelling book, but it is a work of fiction. Yet at the same time, it is uh, said to have be based on historical fact, and the two are woven together in such a way that if one is not uh, aware, they can be drawn into a, to a really subtle and uh, dangerous understanding of the events of the last couple thousand years. Let me see if we can advance a slide here. Uh Now, I want to tell you right up front that all artwork and all animations are the handiwork of my far more adept son (laughs) at these things. So... Indeed, I, uh, I had 30 slides prepared. They were all text and uh, <laughs> long paragraphs that I had written or quoted. And, uh, and uh, he said, Dad, that's just not the way PowerPoints use. <laughs> and so, uh, so he came in uh, on Friday and, um, and helped me out on this. And so, so that's good. You're looking at a, at a very famous painting, of course, the uh, painting of The Last Supper done by Leonardo da Vinci. And um, this and other da Vinci artwork form kind of a, a, a part of the, of the mystery that unfolds in this book. There are presumably, or not presumably, there are, there are, according to the novel, there are clues hidden in this artwork that help reveal the secret truth, the code of da Vinci. And I put this up here for you. See, I even got a laser pointer here. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> this figure right here. Okay, just to the right of Jesus uh, is an important figure in this book for many, many reasons. And admittedly, when you look at that, that is a feminine-looking figure, is it not? Well, that is because of the of the style of artwork at that time. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the Apostle John. Okay, the Apostle John, the one who leaned on Jesus' breast at the meal. Of course, you know that Da Vinci's a Portrayal of this, you, uh, you heard this and when you came to the, uh, to the um, um, Passover uh, uh, Seder that we did just a, a while back. It was not conducted in this fashion. But this, is, this was the, the art fashion of the time, so da Vinci painted this painting. The Apostle John was one of the youngest, probably the youngest of the apostles. And so he was portrayed as was common in the day for a young man to be portrayed with feminine features. But according to Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, this feminine looking figure is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, and Dan Brown uh, goes on to tell you how, uh, contrary to what you think you know or have heard, that Jesus of Nazareth secretly married Mary Magdalene and fathered a child through her and began a long line of descendants. This is the, uh, this is Dan Brown on the right and his, his book. And if you open his book to the, uh, to the opening page, he says the following things, right? You can read this for yourself, but he makes these claims about the, uh, the factual or the historical reliability of what's underneath his fiction. He, he says and has said on, on various uh, interviews, television interviews and so forth, that obviously the characters are fictitious, but the events... Uh, The artwork, the architecture, the documents, the secret rituals, and so forth in this novel are accurate. He goes on to say that one of the aspects I try very hard to incorporate is learning, right? When you read this book, he says, you have learned a ton. Well, if you are unaware and unsuspecting, you will have learned a ton, all right. But it will be a ton of garbage that you will need to relearn with regard to the truth. How would the Apostle Paul respond to the uh, claims of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, he would say that we need to learn to handle accurately the word of truth. Okay, We need to rightly divide the word of truth. So let me just uh, continue to build your background here with uh, what we're calling the, uh, the Players, and this is for the movie release. So they've uh, enlisted Tom Hanks, which is a, you know, a very well-known actor, and he will lend credibility to this film. He portrays a professor, uh, Robert Langdon, one of the major uh, uh, characters of this book, and he is supposedly a professor of religious symbology, symbology at Harvard University. So a very well-educated man. They've also... Uh, they've also... Ah! The miracle of PowerPoint. They've been, uh, listed, uh, Ian McKellen, another well known actor, character actor, and he plays this gentleman called Lee Teebing, who is also a significant role player in this book. His, uh, his pedigree is he is a former British royal historian and expert on the Holy Grail. Into the mouths of these two fictional characters, Dan Brown loads that which he wants to say. He puts into their mouths, into these characters, his convictions about salvation, about God, about Jesus Christ, and about the New Testament. The background and the basis of the book is a search for the Holy Grail. It is a search for the Holy Grail, and as the novel unfolds, you come to learn things that you thought, uh, that you never heard of with regard to what is the Grail, and um, by the time you're done, your head will be spinning. Now, there is a predominant undercurrent or theme behind this book. Yeah, that thing is slipping, I think, on the deal a little. The predominant theme or undercurrent in the book is that ancient paganism, which was the worship of the divine feminine, was the religion of the world and that it was overcome by a male-oriented, uh, domination under the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. And that Constantine, in conjunction with the Roman Catholic Church, conspired to conceal the truth about the, the worship of the, what they call the sacred feminine. It is goddess worship. It is the basis behind classical paganism. It is the basis behind the Wicca movement, which, by the way, is growing rapidly in our country. It is the the basis that lies behind the ancient heresies of Gnosticism. And I should stop and define that term for you, I think. Gnosticism comes from a Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics were a heretical group that... That sprung up within Christendom in an attempt to uh, subvert biblical Christianity, and the, what they said was that you achieve salvation not by the death of Christ on your behalf as an atonement to cover for your sin, but as you came to a greater and greater understanding of knowledge, of you would release the divine spark within you, and you would achieve your godlike status, and you would be, uh, you would become like God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Back in the garden, there was the serpent who came to Eve and he said to her that if you will eat, you will become like God. And so Gnosticism uh, was around in, in certainly by the second century. You can read in the New Testament places where what they call proto-Gnosticism, that is early forms of Gnosticism, were being combated by the writers in the New Testament, especially the apostle John for he is the one who writes the latest portions of the New Testament. And this, this ancient heresy, by the way, uh, never disappeared. It merely went underground like a, like a polluted stream, only to resurface at various points in the, in the last couple thousand years. And beloved, it, is, it has surfaced now and it is alive and well. The culture in which we find ourselves ministering is increasingly becoming more and more like the culture of the New Testament than anything, I think, really imaginable. And so the New Testament, in that sense, becomes more and more relevant. We are dealing with a society that is rapidly becoming pagan, and it is expressing itself in various areas of both classical Gnosticism and just uh, ancient paganism, the worship of this goddess this sacred feminine so i've defined it for you here the sacred feminine is the reign of mother nature the reign of mother nature i've included a quote for you here from a modern day witch as she defines this sacred feminine right she is the great forces of birth growth death and regeneration that move through the universe for many aspects are the faces we put on these forces so we can interact with them. She is eminent within us as well as in nature. So we have pantheism, that is, that the divine inhabits the, both the creature, man, and the creation. There are the spirits of the trees and the rocks and so forth. The force is with you, beloved. It—it It is the governing principle of the universe, right? At least according to George Lucas from 20 years ago or so, that is nothing but ancient paganism. And so it is very much a part of the culture in which we find ourselves. Now, the book, uh, it cites numerous supposed facts in support of its general thesis or to support its contention. And um, Dan Brown is is a clever writer. And his facts, many of his facts, are out and out wrong, but others are like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That is, they're about 80% right, and they've got about a 20% list to them. And so if you are unaware of that, you can easily be drawn in by his argument. And so let me cite for you now, over the next 20 minutes or so, some of the supposed facts upon which the premise of this book is built, and then give you some response to them. So one of the first, one of the areas that he deals with is the attack upon God, and he deals with it here in what's called the Shekinah glory cloud. Right, that's a picture of the of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the Shekinah glory cloud. Right, that descended upon the tabernacle to symbolize the presence. Of God dwelling with His people. By the way, by the way, the, uh, the word Shekinah appears nowhere in the Scriptures. It is a extra biblical word, and it refers to Him who dwells among us. But notice how Dan Brown twists this. <coughs> right? He says early Jews believed that the Holy of Holies in Solomon's Temple housed not only God but also. His powerful female equal Shekinah. Okay? Men came seeking spiritual, or men seeking spiritual wholeness came to the temple to visit priestesses with whom they experienced the divine through physical union. Okay? According to Robert Langdon, Harvard Professor of Religious Symbology, aka Dan Brown. Alright? You'll remember when Israel was poised to enter the promised land, they were on the plains of Moab. And God spoke to Joshua and gave him command to enter into the land. And he told him not to make peace treaties with the inhabitants of the land. Do you remember that? And he told them that he must, it was a holy war, that they were devoted to destruction, that he must destroy man, woman, and child within these cities because they're abominations The abominations of the Amorites, of the inhabitants of the land had reached up to the heights of heaven and they must be wiped out. These were the ones who visited the temple priestesses. That's why God said to Israel, you must extinguish them from your midst because should you fail to do so, they will ensnare you. It is temple prostitutes, temple priestesses who Paul dealt with in the book of, or in Ephesus, right? With the temple of Artemis or Diana, where they would descend upon the city. And this is a very classic pagan notion. And then it and it flows through the book, and that is that you encounter the divine through the intimate relations of a man and a woman. Oop, wrong. So uh so we have our answer to that, right? The truth is, right. The term Shekinah never appears in the Scripture. It means one who dwells. All right. So it is not that the Shekinah glory is the female counterpart to Jehovah. Furthermore, notice what uh, what God says through the mouth of His prophet in one Kings twenty one nine. Right, Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Yes, there were cases, and there, it was rampant at some, point in, at some points in time in Israel's history where they were involved in temple prostitution. But it was not because they were worshiping God that they were connecting to the divine. It is that they were aping the, the uh, abominations of the nations whom God drove out before them. And so this was a curse and a judgment upon the people. It led to both the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. It had nothing to do with the worship of the one true God. Next, let's deal with the assault upon the New Testament. And this is a huge area of, of assault in this book. What I have for you here, what you are looking at, is what's called P52 or Papyrus 52. It is the oldest fragment that we have in our possession of the New Testament. It dates to sometime prior to A.D. 150. So that takes it back very far. It is a fragment of the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. And so if the Gospel of John was written sometime around 85, A.D. 85, then this manuscript is not very far removed from the original autograph of the Gospel of John. The the apostle himself wrote, it is the gospel of John, by the way, that becomes a, really the battleground and focal, or, or focal point of the ongoing and raging battle between modern day Gnosticism and biblical Christianity. And it just so happens that we are privileged to just a few miles down the road, the scholarly, um, uh, what do I want to call it? Brain trust. Behind modern Gnosticism lies at the Claremont School of Theology, because there houses the what's known as the Jesus Seminar, and those scholars that have been working upon what they call the Jesus in the Jesus Seminar have been studiously debunking or trying to debunk the Gospel of John and elevate the what's known as the Gospel of Thomas. And they, the reason they want to do, to do away with the Gospel of John is because it is such a direct uh, contradiction of their Gnostic beliefs. They rely on, if you were to overturn, let me back up, if you were to overturn the Gospel of John, there is much that, that, that we know about Christ that you would lose for example you've uh, you 've seen recently i 'm sure in the papers and perhaps on TV this gospel of judas right you've you 've seen about that yes? yes, somebody has good okay the Gospel of Judas is an ancient document. it was recently released it by the way was stolen from Egypt a long time ago and it has is, it is lain in a safety deposit box and through ver- various um, activities, both legal and illegal, it has become now available to the public. In the Gospel of Judas, and by the way, I have a copy of it up here if somebody would like to read it. In the Gospel of Judas, Jesus praises Judas for betraying him. And in that Gospel, Jesus supposedly says to Judas that you are freeing me. You are freeing the divine me from the human Um, part of me by betraying me for crucifixion. And so Judas is made out to be the hero of the story. And the reason that, that I bring this up is because we, the gospel that talks the most about Judas's evil deeds is the gospel of John. The other gospels speak about Judas the traitor, but it is the gospel of John that tells us that he was a thief and that he was stealing from the money box all along. It is the Gospel of John where Jesus says that, that uh, one of you is a devil. And so it is in the Gospel of John where Judas is betrayed as the, as the evil person he is. And so to undo that Gospel is to be able to elevate Judas. The two main documents of the Jesus Seminar that, they, that they're really invested in are what's called the Gospel of Thomas and Q source. And you'll hear about, uh, Dan Brown refers to, through his characters, the Gospel of Thomas and the Q source. Q source is a fictitious document that is, that was dreamed up by, by German critical New Testament scholars to try to explain the fact that Matthew and Luke's Gospel have a, have a quite a bit of overlap to them. And so they postulate this fictitious document from which both Matthew and Luke must have copied. No one has ever seen Q because it does not exist. But but amazingly, now you can actually on the Internet find a copy of the Q document, which is just fascinating to me that they can produce a document that doesn't even exist. So the New Testament is under assault, and it's under assault... Because by overturning the New Testament, then, the, then the, the books of the Gnostics can come in and they can remake Christianity as they would choose to make it. So I, we have this tension. I'm calling it the New Testament versus Nag Hammati. Now, Nag Hammati is a place, that's the name of a place in Egypt. In this place in 1945 were found 13 codices. There's a picture of them. These 13 codices date from the late 4th century. Nag Hammadi was a Gnostic community. They were they were um, excluded from the, the camp of the believers, if you will, and they had congregated together there. And these Gnostic texts, and there are, of over, there are a little over 50, I think, 53 texts that are represented in these 13 codices that were buried there in this Gnostic community. Well, they were discovered in 1945. They were later translated into English. I don't remember the date of that. I think it was 1977 or something along those lines. And so these Gnostic documents tell a different story. And Dan Brown and his characters use the contents Uh, of these documents and also uh, make up contents that don't exist within the documents to support his case in order to say that the ancient worship of the female deity was overturned by the patriarchal, by the male-dominated Catholic Church. And there's there's a statement in the book where it says, winners write history. And so, therefore, because the Catholic Church, with the support of the Emperor Constantine, was in power, they suppressed and oppressed those other true Christians and forced them outside the church labeling them as heretics. And so what we must do, according to Dan Brown, is we must go back to these ancient documents, discover their meaning and what it is they're communicating, and come to an understanding that that what you have believed and the church has believed for 2,000 years is completely wrong, and indeed the truth lies in these lost documents of Nag Hammadi. So our answer to Dan Brown in regard to that is, well, let me give you a couple of quotes You can read it from the book yourself, right? The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Those are rather bold statements. And for one who is unfamiliar with, the, with how the, the canon of Scripture came together, these are troubling statements. Is it possible that indeed there were 80 Gospels considered and we only ended up with four? The answer is... Amen. Amen. The answer is false. False. There are, by the way, at, at Nag Hammati... In those codices, there are only five Gnostic Gospels, not 80, only five. This time the building tilts a little more than 20 degrees. They are the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and the Gospel of Philip. None of these documents were ever seriously considered for inclusion into the canon of the New Testament. The word canon means measuring stick or ruler. They were never seriously considered to be part of the canon. Why? What qualified a document or a writing to be included as Scripture versus these others? Well, there were basically three tests of whether a document belonged into the, new, into the canon of the New Testament. By the way, let me just insert here that the classic Protestant definition of the canon of the New Testament, is that it is a fallible collection of infallible books. The Roman Catholic definition that it is an infallible collection of infallible books. The difference being that the Roman Catholic Church says that they sit in authority over the word of God and decided what would be in and and they infallibly decided what would be in and what would, would not be in. The classic Protestant definition is that these are infallible books and we have gathered them together. And that it is possible that there could be another infallible book out there somewhere, but in 2,000 years it has never shown up. So what qualified something to be part of the canon of the New Testament? Well, the tests were simple. First, it had to have apostolic authority. It had to either been written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. You remember that Jesus commissioned the apostles to go forth and be his messengers. They were to carry on his ministry. They were the ones that were empowered to do the signs and wonders, the signs of an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12.12, were done among you, Paul says, to certify their ministry. And so the writings had to be from an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. Secondly, they had to agree with that which was already acknowledged and known to be scripture. They had to agree with the Old Testament first. And then as the New Testament was gathered, they had to agree with the other books of the New Testament. And third, and this is the, is this is really the most significant one of all. And that is what's called, theologians call it the Testimonium of the Holy Spirit. That is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit of God upon the hearts of His own people to tell them that this is indeed God's Word. Listen, for example, what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter two, verse 13. He says, "For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He's commending the Thessalonian church for receiving the Word of God from the apostles. And they understood by the testimony of the Spirit of God on their hearts that that the, that the Apostle Paul was speaking the very Word of God to them. The Scriptures themselves speak to the issue of what belongs in the canon and what doesn't. Art read us this verse here a little bit earlier tonight, right? Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It means it's not released out of one's own understanding. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It was the work of the Holy Spirit upon them that enabled them to write the very word of God. Notice also Peter's statement here in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, speaking about the apostle Paul's writing. So we have contemporary apostles speaking about and writing about each other. He says, With regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking to them of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. When Peter uses the word scriptures, he is including all of the Old Testament and these writings of Paul as part of the New Testament. So the people were conscious right then and there when it was written that what was being written was scripture it was scripture when the apostle paul wrote romans he was writing scripture he knew it and the roman the church at rome knew it when they received it as well and so the word of god testifies to its own character as scripture furthermore notice that matthew mark luke and john were written sometime between ad 50 and 85 Matthew being the earliest gospel, probably around A.D. 50, and John the last, A.D. 85. These Gnostic gospels that were found there at Nag Hammadi were written between 150 and 350 A.D., and they were never considered for acceptance by the believing community. It was never in doubt. Never in doubt. Notice the difference in time period, by the way. 50 to 85, you have the eyewitnesses of Christ before their lives come to an end in martyrdom, they record the message that they have been preaching for the purposes of the wider distribution to the community of believers, to the church. These other Gnostic Gospels, written as, the earliest of which, AD 150, and then all the way into the 4th century, under, uh, under false name, the Gospel of Thomas, as if Thomas, Doubting Thomas somehow wrote this. Doubting Thomas was long since dead. Let me do it this way. Let me give you an example of how the testimonium of the Holy Spirit works. Are you ready for this? If I can do this right, we're going to give you a test. Well, here's the test. Does this sound like the inspired word of God to you? The Holy Spirit of your child tonight resides within your heart. You have the ability within you to know Scripture when you read it and to know a pretender. His disciples said, when will you appear to us and when will we see you? Jesus said, when you strip without being ashamed and you take your clothes and put them under your feet like little children and trample them, then you will see the son of the living one and you will not be afraid. Does that sound like the the gospel to you? We go back to that for a moment. By the way, when it's talking about taking your clothes, right? Putting them under your feet. And uh, <clears throat> where is it here? Um, this idea of, of stripping off and becoming naked, that you might understand spiritual things better. That is a theme that flows through Gnosticism. Or how about this one, ladies? Was it the Roman Catholic Church and its... And it's it's a male-oriented dominance that crushed the beauty of ancient feminine paganism. Notice what the Gospel of Thomas says here, right? Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, that's Mary Magdalene, for females don't deserve life. Sounds like the (laughs) Koran. Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, beloved, and uh, I, I want to try to deal with this in a way that's sensitive to the age spread of our crowd. Gnosticism is very much involved with prom- promiscuity. As the scripture warns us, That uh, we spoke earlier this morning about greed being a characteristic of a false teacher. Promiscuity is also a characteristic of a false teacher. And Gnosticism and promiscuity are very much linked together. And so the movement within our country and within Western civilization for the normalization of male-male, female-female relationships is very much an outgrowth of this underlying philosophy. That is one strain of Gnosticism. Another strain is just the uninhibited expression of intimacy outside of the covenant relationship of marriage. So how do we respond? Or let me let me keep going. I guess that's what I want to do here. These are further statements attacking first God, then the New Testament, now Jesus Christ. The book says Jesus was a moral prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Jesus married Mary Magdalene and fathered a daughter named Sarah from which descended a line of French kings. Charlemagne was supposedly part of that line. Third, Jesus was recognized as divine by a close vote at the Council of Nicaea in 325. That's the council over which Constantine, as emperor, presided. Okay? So these are the bold claims made by this book. Again, this is not the tower just leaning a little. This is the tower lying in pieces on the ground. Okay? Because they are nothing but lies. They are nothing but lies. There is not a shred of truth in any of these bold statements which attack our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus claim? Right? John 10, I and the Father are one. And his contemporaries knew what he was talking about. In fact, they understood it so well that they picked up stones to stone him. And he says, for which of my good works are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. There is no question in the New Testament that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. God, very God, among us. It's, it's, it's so clear and apparent in the pages of the New Testament, that it's, it's ludicrous to assume otherwise. Yet the underlying strain of Gnosticism, that is, that the flesh is evil and that the Spirit is good, would say that Jesus was merely a man, not divine. So, what is the truth? Not even the Gnostic Gospels of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Philip, both written after AD two hundred, state that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. There is no statement anywhere, in certainly not in the New Testament, nor is there in the Gnostic Gospels that Jesus Christ married Mary Magdalene. It is pure fiction. Furthermore, in the gospel of Philip, Mary Magdalene is said to be Jesus' companion. And Dan Brown, in his book, Camps on this issue, which, according to Lee T. Bing, that is the expert, right, is an Aramaic word meaning spouse. And so there's his clue. He says, see, in in the gospel of Philip, there's an Aramaic word translated in the English companion, and it means spouse. That means that she was his spouse. But the problem is that the gospel of Philip is written in Coptic, not Aramaic. Okay, So there, it is a non-argument. It is a non-argument. The fact that the Aramaic word translated companion means spouse doesn't mean anything at all. The Gospel of Philip was never written in Aramaic, only in Coptic. Again, a distortion. Go back. I think I overdid a slide. Yeah, here we go. Furthermore, the Council of Nicaea was called to bring unity to the church regarding not Christ's deity but his homoousios, that is, the fact that he was of one substance with the Father. Arius, the heretic Arius, taught that Christ was a created being. The Jehovah's Witnesses are the modern-day descendants of the Arian heresy. So even Arius was not claiming that Jesus was just a man, that he was not divine. Even Arius acknowledged that he was divine. The argument was, and the error for Arius was... That he said that Jesus was the first created being; he was divine, but he was not of one substance. He was not uh, uh, of a. Um, he was not one with the Father. He was not part of the triune Godhead. And then, as far as the vote at the council, where you remember the um, in the book it says it was a close vote. The vote was three hundred to two. Okay, condemning the heresy of Arius. So, attack on God, attack on the New Testament, attack on the person of Jesus Christ. Finally, attack on salvation. Salvation versus syncretism. Syncretism is the combination of various religious components to create your own religion. So we have salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone, and we have the syncretistic worldview, a la Dan Brown. And it's amazing where the attack takes place. This book's advocation of ancient paganism, which plays very well in our culture, the idea that, that, um, that the intimate relationship between a man and a woman is a means by which you can encounter the divine, plays very well into our culture. Furthermore, the other strand of Gnosticism that the idea that uh, of um, that, that you that uh, opposite the female worship, but the the idea that you don't need men also plays well into our culture, and both of them represent a, a serious attack upon the biblical doctrine of marriage. Marriage is absolutely under attack in our culture. Notice these statements. It's called a mystical spiritual act, whereby one can find that spark of divinity that man can only achieve through union with the sacred feminine. Furthermore, according to the book, the Holy Grail is not, as legend has stated, a chalice in which was caught the blood of Christ, but is a code word for Mary Magdalene's womb, through which passed the bloodline of Jesus, the sacred feminine. And so it's all been turned on its head. And now that which to God is an abomination, the most beautiful of, of, of um, contact or relationship between a man of a, and a woman designed to be, to be uh, acted out within the covenant bound of marriage is now freely uh, bandied about in our culture. And is now spoken of as being a way to contact the divine. It is now a means of worship. A means of worship. Intimacy between a man and a woman within the context of marriage is a spiritual act. There is no question about that. The Bible is very clear that the two become one flesh. Beloved, our... Sexuality, our male or femaleness, is part of who we are as God has created us. When we go to heaven, we remain men and women. We do not become androgynous. That is some sort of combination, male-female entity. You are, if you are a man tonight, you are distinctly a man. Right down to your soul. If you are a woman tonight, you are distinctly a woman, right down to your soul. And it is in that unity or union that occurs within the marriage context, that one flesh relationship in which our spirits do, in a sense, meet one another. And that is why God talks about the fact that he created humanity in his own image, male and female, he created them and it's together in the marriage relationship that we do express something of who God is. Furthermore, throughout the Bible, the marriage is used, the marriage relationship, the, the act of marriage is used by God to express a reflection of His intense and exclusive passion for His own people. That is why throughout Scripture, God is always portrayed as a loving Husband, when you read the song of Solomon, you are getting a glimpse of the intense passion that God has for his people. Hosea, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, speak as well of these things. Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. In the intensity of your love for your wife, gentlemen, that's the intensity of the love of Christ for his church. And when that intensity reaches its, its highest level in the, in the act of marriage, you are getting a glimpse of God's passion for His church. What has happened is that that which is beautiful and that which is made to portray the relationship between God and His bride has now become perverted and stripped and taken outside of the marriage relationship. It is blasphemy, these statements that are made and taught through this book. Furthermore, the idea that the Holy Grail is the womb of the Virgin Mary does not go back to the 11th century as Dan Brown would have you believe, a secret discovered in the in the in the ruins of Solomon's temple by the Knights Templar. Everyone, there seems to be a resurgence of Knights Templar, right? All kinds of movies about that. And then closely guarded by them, codes or, or clues to the reality of which are expressed in the artwork of Leonardo da Vinci, as the book would tell you. In fact, the whole notion that the Holy Grail is the womb of, the, of Mary Magdalene first surfaced in 1956, through a Frenchman named Pierre Plantard, who claimed to be a descendant of the line of kings originating from the fruit of the union of Jesus and Mary. Plantard's claims were later recanted by him, but not before they became enshrined in a 1982 book entitled Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is the basis of Dan Brown's novel and was also the basis of the lawsuit, by the way, in which the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail sued him for plagiarism. They did not prevail in the suit, but there, there is an incredible closeness to this notion underneath it. And so this, uh, this Frenchman, who, by the way, was a fraud and involved in many fraudulent activities as well as the occult, was the one who first dreamed up this notion. And, of course, he was the, the last descendant of that bloodline and thus the rightful heir to the throne of France. The novel ends. The novel ends with Robert Langdon discovering the truth, according to Dan Brown. Discovering the resting place, which has been the search of the book, the search for the Holy Grail. Discovering the resting place of the bones of Mary Magdalene, the sacred feminine. And so the book ends with him there worshiping at that shrine. This is the, my French is no good, so this is the Inverse Pyramid. How do you like that? Okay. This is the Inverse Pyramid found at the Louvre. It is a glass pyramid that begins at ground level, is my understanding, and penetrates down into the ground to the subterranean floors of the Louvre. And then there is this little four-foot-high other pyramid that comes up from the floor According to the novel, this little pyramid is merely the tip of a much larger edifice that lies secretly below the floor there in this gallery of the Louvre, in which lie the bones of Mary Magdalene and the documents proving that she is the original sacred feminine. And it was in her womb that the seed of Jesus was passed on. This too, by the way, uh, even here... According to the novel, there are 666 panes of glass, and he spends a little time talking about 666. Problem is, there are 673 panes of glass in there. Okay? Good fiction, bad research. The book also, at its conclusion, talks about a place called Rosslyn Chapel. It's in Scotland. It is an, an old, very old chapel, and... Along the, the ceiling and walls and so forth are all kinds of engravings of various religious symbolism. Every surface in the chapel has been carved with symbols. Christian cruciforms, Jewish stars, Masonic seals, Templar crosses, cornucopias, pyramids, astrological signs, plants, vegetables, pentacles, and roses. Rosslyn Chapel was a shrine to all faiths, to all traditions, and to, above all, to nature and the goddess. Okay? What is the religion of our world? It is a syncretistic religion in which you are ultimately to worship the goddess through whatever manifestation it might come, whether it come through Judaism, whether it come through Christian symbol, whether it come through Masonic ritual, whether it come through astrological signs, whether you are a radical environmentalist, and it comes through plants and vegetables, which you believe also have the divine within them, lest it come from that which is the sign of the occult, on and on, all blurred and mingled together. And it is that which Robert Langdon has now been liberated to worship, and that which Dan Brown would have the whole world be liberated to worship. How does this square with the New Testament? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one, comes to the Father, but through me. There are not many paths to the top of the mountain. All streams do not end up in the ocean of faith. There is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the Apostle John, in the last chapter, the last book of the New Testament, He writes these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. What is the faith of those who would seek to Merge and blend religion in some sort of salad bar, do-it-yourself, homemade path to God. They will find themselves outside of the city, suffering eternal torment in hell. So how do we respond to this book? You know, the, the um, part of the basic underlying theme, the idea that Jesus... Uh, had a a physical relationship with Mary Magdalene was uh, underlying a movie that came out some time back called The Last Temptation of Christ. you remember that? And uh, the evangelical community's response to that movie was massive boycotts and protests. I think we've learned something. Because how would we respond to this book? Do we go and stand in front of the movie theater with placards walking up and down and saying that the Da Vinci Code is blasphemy? I don't think so. I think we have a much better way to respond to this. And so what I would suggest to us is that there are three three things we need to do in response to this book. First, we need to know the facts. There is an appalling level of ignorance, certainly outside the church, but that's to be expected. But the appalling level of ignorance exists inside the church. Evangelicalism has no idea where they came from. Therefore, they have no idea where they're going. We need to do the hard work so that we know the facts and that when someone makes a stupid statement, like that the Council of Nicaea, the deity of Jesus Christ, was decided by a relatively close vote, that you would know that it is patently false. We need to be better informed, we need to know the facts. When I finished the book and I was telling my family about it, um, my son said, I'd like to read the book. And my first response was no. Because there are some things in the book that are that are difficult or challenging. And then after a day or so of thinking about it, I came back to him and I said, yeah, I think you should read the book. But along with it, I've got another book I want you to read too. Because I want you to have a good grasp of the facts. Beloved, For for those who are mature, we need to know. The, the solution is not to put up the walls higher, put a bigger fence around the property, build the, build the concrete walls higher and put a few machine gun turrets around them while we're at it <laughs> and keep the evil world out. We need to be salt and light. We need to walk among them. Jesus walked among the sinners. Okay? Jesus walked among the sinners and he was not defiled because to the pure, all things are pure. But to he who is defiled everything is impure. And so if your heart is pure, then read the book, get educated, and be ready. So know the facts. And then pray for boldness. Pray for the opportunity for that person to bring this up at school. To say, man, Friday night I stood in line and I went and I saw the movie The Da Vinci Code and boom, you now have an opportunity to talk. But pray for boldness so you'll open your mouth and you'll begin to engage them with regard to the gospel. And that's my third point is that we are to open our mouths and speak. Open your mouth and say something. You have the truth. The apostle Paul, or excuse me, the apostle Peter rather, speaking to uh, to his readers, in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Sanctify Christ or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within you. What did I do? <laughs> hope your computer don't blow up, Vince. Put this little verse from... Uh, From 1 Chronicles, it was, it's kind of buried there in Chronicles. That's okay, I'll read the verse to you. What a beautiful day. Hey man, you guys are going to have to read all of Vincent's email here in a minute. You don't have any sensitive stuff on there, do you, brother? Yeah, exactly. I mean, here we are sitting there reading your mail, man. <laughs> Listen to what the Chronicler says. First Chronicles 12, verses 23 and 32. Now, these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. What we need are men and women who understand the times and have a knowledge of what it is the church should do. I pray that tonight in this room, that that's the kind of people we have here, people who understand the times. There are a number of resources available. We have an excellent book in our bookstore. It's called Cracking Da Vinci's Code. It's by uh, James Garlow and Peter Jones. This is a, if you can only get one book, and after a while when you've been reading, they all begin to say mostly the same stuff anyway. So if you can only get one, get this one, Cracking Da Vinci's Code. Beyond that, Campus Crusade has put out a good book by Josh McDowell called A Quest for Answers, the Da Vinci Code. There's another one called Breaking the Da Vinci Code by Darrell Bach. I found it less helpful. Okay, and there, I'll tell you the reason I find it less helpful. I'll just give you the reason right now. Daryl Bach, who is a a, uh, research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, also believes there is a Q source. I think he has given away half the fight on the front side. Another book that I also found helpful was called The Da Vinci Codebreaker by James Garlow again, and it has more than 500 facts and terms. So it's a, it's, it's like a little encyclopedia of all the various terms that are brought up in the book. And and how they are, uh, where they are true or not true. So that's also a helpful book if you want to research this. So those are a few things. I'll have them up here afterwards. You can look at them if you'd like to. Let's pray here for a moment. And Ron, we we need to sing because uh, after going through all of this stuff, I feel the need to express my worship to God who has redeemed me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight, and I thank you for the large crowd that turned out. And I pray, Lord, that uh, that you would help them to process that which has been said this evening, and and to to take that which has been helpful to them, and to and to expand upon it in their own study, that they might become better equipped, better able to give a, a reason for the hope that lies within them. Father, I thank you that the evangelical church at large has responded to this. In a better way than merely placards and protests, that there is a concerted effort going on 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 the part of many, many churches to try to take this cultural phenomena, this this subtle but frontal assault upon the truth of Christianity, and to turn it into a bridge through which we can share the life-changing news of Jesus Christ. Our Father, these people are not our enemies, as you so well know, for these people... It is for whom, or it is for them as well as us that you sent your son to die on that cross. Give us a heart of compassion for them, for they are but lost as we were once lost. We pray that you would take this to your glory and use it in Christ's name. Amen.